Are you guys like Stephen Colbert? I know Kayla loves Stephen Colbert, right? Eh. But anyway, so he has the thing on his show, right? The Colbert Questionnaire. You guys know about this? And one of the questions in the Colbert Questionnaire is, what do you think happens when we die? And he asks all these celebrities um, like they would know. Um, and it's really interesting. So I'm going to read you. I went through a whole bunch of them. I'm going to read you these, okay? Jennifer Lawrence, the great philosopher. What, what do you think happens when you die? She said, I think they give your hospital bed to somebody else. Keanu Reeves, he took the same idea, but he made it a little nicer. He said, I know that the, the ones who loved us will miss us. George Clooney, I'll just summarize because his was longer. He basically goes, I was raised Catholic. I moved away from it. As I'm getting older, I'm starting to think more and more. Maybe there's something like a bar where we can all hang out. That was his answer. <laughs> okay. Okay, George. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, he said, individual consciousness, adios. But our souls and our spirits grow and live on with the people that we loved and who have loved us and with the people we've had an impact on with our work and our daily experience. So that's very, you know, Eastern thinking of him. Uh, Seth Rogen, the other great philosopher, he said, oh man, I don't know. I'm hoping it's something we don't understand. I don't even know what he means by that. <laughs> I'm hoping it's something we don't... Anyway, Martha Stewart, the convict, uh, she said, <laughs> we go to heaven. And then Colbert goes, if we're good or everyone? And she goes, oh no, only nice people. Now, who has a million questions, follow-up questions I would have loved to ask her, but Colbert doesn't ask a lot of follow-up questions. All right, uh, Bradley Cooper, he says, oh man, I don't know, you tell me. That was his answer. His was like the most honest, I think. Like, I feel like everybody else tried to think of something profound, and Bradley Cooper was just like, I, I'm an actor, man. <laughs> uh, Ringo, uh, from the Beatles, he says, you go to heaven. Colbert says, what's heaven like? Oh, heaven's great. But you don't stay there too long. You just have to get yourself together again and then come down here and deal with all the crap. Well, clean this up, all the crap that you didn't deal with last time you're here. So some sort of reincarnation. Uh, John Oliver, I'm just hoping for some sense of peace. He tells Colbert, because Colbert is like a Catholic. He tells Colbert, look, I don't have religion in the way that you do, so I'm just hoping for the end of life to be, that, be something like that feeling when you sink into a chair after a long day. Uh, Tiffany Haddish, the actress, I think that your, this is the last one, I think your body disintegrates and goes away and I think your soul goes and has a meeting to decide if you should come back or not. And then everybody fights over your belongings. <laughs> she added, because she's funny. <laughs> All right, okay. What's missing from basically every one of these answers? A couple of things. Well, yeah, Jesus. That's the obvious Sunday school answer. No, a couple of things are missing though, right? Um, any sort of confidence. Everybody that they asked, everybody that Colbert asked was very shocked by the question, even though he asked everybody that question. They seem very like, I've never watched this show before. And they're expecting them all to be, what's the best sandwich? Is like one of the other questions. You know, they're expecting all questions like that and they get a little bit caught off guard. But nobody was like, oh, let me tell you what happens when I'm we done. The second thing was any sort of judgment. The closest was Martha Stewart, only nice people. Colbert didn't say, well, what happens to everybody else? I would have loved to see Martha Stewart's answer to that, right? 
there's no sort of anything like that. Now, in our culture, truth, we have the whole truth is relative, right? Everything is my truth. And so the answers to these questions are no shock because we're not allowed to A, be confident about anything we believe or B, talk about judgment. And so none of the people really did that. One of the worst things that you can do to somebody in our world is to say, while you're living your truth or whatever, I think you're doing it wrong. It's very offensive to people. It's like the worst thing that you can say to somebody. Now, here's the deal. At the porch, you guys know how we do this. We've been in Luke forever. This is 64, I think, of the Luke ones. And we're in chapter, what is this, 16, <laughs> right? So we're, we're going through, right, pretty slow. And um, the way that we teach, it's called Lectio Continua, right? Write that down in your notes. It's very important. It's going to be on the test. Um, which basically just means we read through whole books of the Bible together. Verse by verse, we talk about the, you know, what does this mean? We explain it. What does this mean for us sort of a thing? And that's how we handle texts. And so um, when a text comes up that really doesn't gel with our culture, we take it anyway. We read it anyway. And today is definitely one of those texts. Um, today we're going to talk about hell and judgment and a lot of that sort of fun stuff. Um, and basically, we're going to see Jesus give his answer to Colbert's question, what happens when we die? And his answer would infuriate most of the people in our culture. So we're going to kind of walk through it slowly, as uncomfortable as it is. We need to kind of work through this text with reverence, and we need to ask God, why is it that you've revealed this stuff to us? Why is this important for us to know? So we're going to start in Luke 16, we're in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. So there was a rich guy. Now, if you remember the context here, what we've been dealing with for a while is Jesus really trying to turn the narrative that God has blessed rich people and is angry with poor people. And he's trying to take that whole narrative that was how this world worked and flip it on its head and teach them, look, guys, the kingdom of God doesn't work like that. That's not how it is. And so now we, he sort of picks up that theme. Look, there was a rich guy and uh, he had, uh, he was clothed in purple, which was like, uh, you know, really it was for royalty. It was very expensive to make purple dye. So in our, you know, like, didn't I make this joke? Was it last week or something about, this guy was so rich, he had suits, he didn't even buy at the men's warehouse, right? Like, <laughs> this guy had fancy Armani suits, the whole thing, fancy, like, watches that are 100 grand, the whole thing. And he was feasting, he feasted sumptuously every day. Now, for most of us, the way we eat now is what would have been considered feasting sumptuously, right? Like these people ate the same thing, bread and something else, some sort of vegetable. You know, they did not eat very well. Meat was for special occasions, weddings and that sort of stuff. And then the other day I had a sandwich with three meats on it, right? You know what I mean? We eat better than the kings of old. So, you know, this guy was eating like we do now, right? And so in this day though, it was like, the every day is very important because some, this means this guy is loaded and he has a lot of food, like a lot of food. And he's, he can just eat whatever he wants. He can go to the fridge. You know, when you go to the fridge and there's no food there, even though there's a lot of food, you know, it's like, there's nothing to eat. This guy goes to the fridge. There's everything to eat. Okay. That's how he is. All right. Keep going. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
So the first thing here is this guy is living at the gate of the rich man. Do you know how rich you have to be to have a gate? <laughs> right? That's kind of a thing a lot of people pass over. This isn't just some guy who has money. This is a guy who has a compound. Right? He has a lot of people. I mean, a lot of money, right? a lot of stuff. And so here, though, we have the rich guy completely contrasted with him is this very poor guy. Right? Think Elon Musk and some guy living on the streets in the tenderloin, sleeps on the ground, not doing very well. And what does it say this guy wants? He just wants to eat. That's all he, he's, one time I went to Burger King. I think I've, I don't know if I've told you this, but one time I went to Burger King a long time ago. The Van S Burger King there up from City Hall a little bit. Like, you know, used to have a drive-thru. And then they decided it's weird to have a drive-thru that could be condos. So they got rid of the drive-thru and now it's a bunch of condos and stuff behind the Burger King. But anyway, I used to be able to drive through that one. And one day I went through the drive-thru and it was late at night. I think it was like after a youth group at the old church. And uh, I was getting dinner, you know, and because um, that's how I cook. I get Burger King. And I saw at the end of the line, there was a guy with a sign asking for food. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to buy this guy some food. So I bought him a Whopper meal. And then I drove up at the end and I rolled the window down. I was like, I'm going to give him a Whopper meal and I'm going to talk to him a little bit and I'm going to say something nice so he knows I'm a believer. You know, Jesus loves you, whatever. I don't know. So I start to hand him the bag. He goes, what is it? I said, it's a Whopper meal. It's Burger King. That's what you get at Burger King, right? It's like the main Burger King thing. He was like, nah, I was wanting chicken. I was just like, <laughs> I was stunned. Really? Wait, I'm so confused. You don't want this free Whopper meal? He, he didn't take it. And I drove, I threw in the garbage. I was so mad. <laughs> anyway, that guy was probably hungry. He was not this hungry, okay? This is hungry, hungry. This is not, I can wait because somebody's also going to buy me a chicken sandwich hungry. Um, uh, he doesn't even, this is the thing. He's not even asking for food. What he's saying is, you know, when you eat in your car, and then the fries fall between the thing there. And then they get very old. And then you vacuum it up. And you're like, oh, there was fries there for way too long. This guy was just asking to eat those fries. Right? That's, that's the level of how hungry this guy was. He just wants to eat the garbage. But did the rich man give him even that? Nope. He's weak and he's dying. Now, let's be honest. I think in a lot of the country, pastors will have to stand up and explain this to people. Not here. You just walk. You know exactly what this guy looks like. He's weak and he's dying and he's covered with sores and it's not going very well for him. To the point where it says even the dogs licked his sores. Now, don't think of fluffy little pet dogs. Like, you know, um, everybody walks their dogs here. In the ancient world, uh, there were only basically two types of dogs. Wild dogs and work dogs. Uh, they didn't have pet dogs. That really wasn't a thing. And so assuming that these probably aren't wild dogs because they're in this guy's compound or whatever, <clears throat> um, these are probably guard dogs. D.A. Carson has a whole thing where he points this out. He talks about this in a sermon. And he says, look, these guard dogs, they weren't fed Purina, whatever, that makes your coat shiny. You know what I mean? I don't know about dog food. I never bought dog food before. But I think you buy it in a big old bag, you know? Okay, they didn't have that. How did they feed dog food, dogs back then? If you had guard dogs, you would give them the scraps from the table. And so this rich guy, what he's doing is he is keeping these dogs alive with the scraps 
while he's letting Lazarus die by not even giving him that much. And then Lazarus gets sick, right? This poor guy, he gets sick. He's starving to death, and these dogs are licking his sores, which means he's so weak, he's laying there, life is running out of him, and the dogs are literally licking him up because they think, this is kind of gruesome, but this is what Carson was saying, I think, in his sermon. These dogs think, hey, this guy's about to die, and then we can eat him. Right? They're just getting ready. These are, wild, you know, these are like not our dogs. You know, these are real like kind of dogs. Uh, like from The Simpsons. Release the hounds. You know those dogs from The Simpsons? No? Nobody watches The Simpsons? All right. You should. It's fantastic. <laughs> we have a slide. Have you guys ever noticed The Simpsons slide? It's like, you know, we have like the porch holding slide. There's one of them that's The Simpsons Church, and it says The Porch and The Simpsons font. Never mind. Anyway. All right. Here's the thing. Poor guy's dying. Dog's licking his sores. But here's the important part. And this is very easy in our culture to miss. He has a name. What's the rich guy's name? Rich guy. Right? Lazarus has a name. Names in this culture were huge. Knowing somebody's name meant that they were known. It meant you were important. The rich guy doesn't have a name. Jesus is subtly telling his listeners, this rich guy sucks and is not that important. But Lazarus, he's known the beggar, the nobody, right? The guy inside with the feast, he's not in on it. He's not in. It's this other guy. It's the whole upside-down kingdom of God. This would have been pretty radical, I think, to the people originally listening. So let's see what happens. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So they both die, the rich guy and the poor guy. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? Everybody dies. That's the joke. The stats on death, death are staggering. One out of one people die. Right? Uh, I'll read, I want to read this to you. Let's see. Do I have this in the slides? Yeah, I do. Uh, Russ Allen Prince from Forbes magazine wrote an article called Who Wants to Live Forever? The Super Rich, That's Who. <laughs> Look at this. Not only do many of the super rich want immortality, but a good number of them are trying to do something about it. The likes of, I don't know who's that guy, the founder of Google, Larry Ellison, that guy from Oracle, uh, Peter Thiel, are all putting money into ventures that are focused on extending the human lifespan. A multitude of approaches have been taken aiming at immortality, or at least at the very, uh, at the very least, a much longer and healthier life. There's the idea of merging artificial intelligence with humans to avert death. By transferring your consciousness into an artificial brain, you will continue to live uh, even though your body is worn out. Cryogenics is being seriously considered. Uh, here they freeze your body, and at a minimum, your head until the field of medicine advances enough to bring you back. Uh, hacking our DNA is another approach that's been taking. Our ability to use stem cells to cure diseases is becoming increasing uh, an opportunity. Very possibly using stem cell technology as well as modifications to our DNA can result in significantly uh, longer and fruitful lives. Uh, anyway, it goes on, right? Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> like the point is, rich people even today, aren't they? trying? These guys are trying to live for, like I'm going to live forever. I'm going to put money into this stuff and it's not going to happen, right? Death is coming and it's coming for everybody. So in our story, we have two guys. The first one is, let me jump back here. Um, the first one is Lazarus. He dies. No burial. And probably the dogs ate him. He died alone, in pain, hungry and sick. 
no comfort, no pillow to rest his head, freezing and shivering. He took his last breath completely by himself with some dogs licking his sores. And as soon as he closed his eyes, what happens? The angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, let me explain this. Uh, in Greek, what it literally says is Abraham's bosom, right? Some translations will say that. You'll see that. Abraham's bosom. Um, it's an image. It's a picture. In our culture, we might say in Abraham's arms, right? Uh, it's getting a hug from Abraham, right? This was the hope of every first century Jewish person to be carried away to paradise, to be at Abraham's side. And he's brought there by the angels. So there's much fanfare when he dies. All of a sudden, there's this great reversal. On earth, he had nobody, and I mean nobody. And in death, he has everybody. He has the angels, he has Abraham, and of course, it's implied he has God the Father, right? Now, what about the rich man? He dies and was buried. He has a lavish burial. You, these uh, first century Jewish uh, funerals were a big deal. They would hire mourners, and they would carry the body out to the, you know. It was like a big production that went on for days and days and days. This guy probably had a massive funeral. And everybody came and they talked about how much they love this guy and blah, blah, blah. But where does he go? Angels carry Lazarus into Abraham's side with much fanfare, but not this guy. Look what happens. Verse 23. So, and this is the rich guy. And in Hades, being in torment. So Hades, in the Old Testament, there's a word, sheol, um, that I had to write a college paper on. And it was just a broad word that meant like the afterlife, just any sort of the afterlife. And so to determine what it was, which part of the afterlife you were in, you had to use context. And context is key. It's the same here with this word Hades. It just kind of means the afterlife. He's in the afterlife and he's in torment. This is our context. Where did this guy go? He went to hell, the place of torment. Francis Chan wrote a book on hell called Erasing Hell uh, that if you're... Uh, want to read more about this at some point, because people are going to ask you about this. You know, you guys really believe in hell. Chan's book is fantastic. Now, I'm going to read you here, and then I'm going to read another one at the end that's a little bit longer than this one even. This is what Chan says. The question of what is hell has spawned many answers over the years. For origin, hell was a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so they could find their way back to God. Dante depicted hell as a place under the earth's surface with nine levels of suffering where sinners were bitten by snakes and tormented by beasts, showering with icy rain, showered with icy rain, trapped in rivers of blood or flaming tombs, somewhere even steeped in huge pools of human excrement. C.S. Lewis's portrayal of hell is significantly less creepy. For Lewis, it was kind of a dark, gloomy city, a place where being fades into non-entity. A happier portrait of hell was painted by the band ACDC, who said that hell ain't a bad place to be and it's where all our friends are. Right, you know that song, Highway to Hell? As uh, depressing as um, that song is to think about, that guy can play guitar. Anyway, most recently, Rob Bell said that hell is not about somebody or somewhere else, but about the various hells on earth that people experience in this life, genocide, rape, unjust social, economic socioeconomic structures. So there's a lot of different ways over time that people have described hell. Most of probably how you're picturing hell, it comes from Dante's thing, the devil with his pitchfork and the whole thing, you know, the levels of hell and everything. Okay, so what I want to do, we've talked about this just a tiny little bit through the book of Luke, uh, but I want to stop here because it's very easy to go, where does all this come from? Right, where does all this language come from? So I want to do just a quick walkthrough. What does the Bible say about hell? 
Okay, the first thing, it describes it as eternal punishment. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It describes it as torment and wrath. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out, sorry, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of his holy lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then in Romans 5, that same image, torment and wrath. But because of your hard and uh, impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Talks about hell as the second death, right? But as for the cowardly, the faith, you know, he goes through the whole list there. Um, Their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Uh, it talks about punishment and separation from the Creator and also that it's eternal. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Let's see, what's the next one here? It talks about how hell is deserved. I will tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Right, so nobody's going to be in hell and going, I don't deserve this. Right, they're going to have to give an account. That's the idea. It's a place of sorrow and anguish, right? You remember we read this in the parable of the narrow door. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you see yourselves cast out. That's almost perfectly describing the parable we're about to get back to. Uh, it talk, the Bible uses, we already read a little bit of this, but fire imagery. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, this is also just a side note about hell. We think of hell as like, oh, you go there and then Satan messes with you. That's not what happens, right? The biblical picture of hell is like, this is where Satan's going. Like he's the main reason hell exists is God is going to send him there to be punished for all of eternity. But he's not the only one that's going there, right? Uh, Okay, so the other thing too, just real quick, the fire imagery, Dante took it very literally. Do we take the fire imagery literally? I don't think so. I don't think hell is actual, although there's different view and opinions and stuff. I don't think hell is actual fire and brimstone. I think that's the worst image that they could come up with in the first century for something that sucks, is to be in a fire, right? That's terrible. But the thing is, a lot of times people will try to say, well, we don't take it literal fire, and try to soften the idea of hell. The problem is an image is always used to describe something worse, not less. So whatever it is, if it's not fire, it's worse. The loneliness, the suffering, the separation from God, the wrath, all of that. Worse than fire, although the fire imagery is used constantly. All right. Um, It's going to suck for everybody that's there, but it's going to be worse for some people. Uh, We're not going to get into this a ton, but there's a few spots. This is one that we actually read this to earlier, but It says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, right? So for those guys, the judgment is going to be worse than it will be for you. Now, one last passage here, just kind of a catch-all where the book of Revelation talks about hell. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead and those who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so what we just did was a walkthrough of a whole bunch of passages that are wildly offensive to Western ears, right? To 21st century Americans. But here's the thing. Look at the source of this stuff. We're reading Luke because we want to see Jesus for who he really is, who he really reveals himself to be. And for the most of us, right, for most of us, we have this picture of Jesus as just this sort of gentle guy who would never offend anybody. But the problem is that's not really true. He was constantly offending people, and he was constantly speaking truth in a loving way, but in a way that still pissed a lot of people off. And so if, even if you set aside the idea of inspiration and that Jesus inspired the rest of those verses we read, just the stuff that Jesus says about hell is a lot of stuff, right? A lot of what we know about hell comes from the very mouth of Christ himself. And so we, as his people, should take this very seriously, this idea. When we read this parable and it says this rich guy, he ends up in Hades in torment. The serious stuff. There's this whole biblical theology. So anyway, back to the parable. This guy wakes up. He dies. He wakes up in hell. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, just one other quick note. What we're reading here is a parable. Now, with parables, you don't always take the images literally. This is a big mistake I think a lot of people make, especially with this parable. So, um, what you want to do is match them up with other parts of Scripture. So, can people in hell really look across and see the people in heaven? Right? Probably not. There's nothing really else in Scripture that indicates that that's how it works. Jesus is using, like, a, uh, he's using a, a false setting as, like, to tell a story about eternity, to make a larger point about eternity. So, anyway, this guy looks up, though. He sees Abraham and Lazarus far off. But the, the phrase there is he lifted up his eyes. This is intentional language. You don't lift up your eyes in joy, right? You lift up your eyes when you're suffering and you're looking down and you're having a really hard time and then you're able, you know, like you use your energy to lift up your face. And what does he see? As he looks across, he sees Lazarus and the angels and they're partying. Do you remember the verse we read where every time somebody in heaven, somebody on earth becomes a believer, you know, puts their faith in Jesus, the angels go bananas disco ball comes out, the whole thing, right? This is what's happening. He's suffering. He's in torment. He looks across, and he sees Lazarus over there um, hanging out with Abraham. That's the beggar that used to bother me while I was trying to park my bends. And he's hanging out with Abraham. He, he was always in my way, and now he's how am I, he over there, and I'm over here. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So we just read a whole, he's in anguish. We read a whole bunch of verses that describe hell exactly like that. But look what he says. He, in anguish, he calls out, Father Abraham, which is a way to say, hey, you know I'm Jewish, right? It's almost, he's almost like surprised where he is. What's going on? You're my father, I'm Jewish. And then he demands mercy. All right, have mercy on me. He just spent his entire life not extending mercy to Lazarus. 
He gets into eternity, and then he demands mercy. Now he wants mercy for himself. Here's the thing, too. He still sees himself as better than Lazarus. Do you see this? Send that guy over here to bring me some water. Not, can you ask him if he would be willing to come over here and to help me? It's Abraham, me and you, we're both better than that guy. Send him over here to me. Even in hell, he has not given up how he sees the world. And here's the really messed up part of this parable. Send Lazarus. He knew his name. The rich guy. The, it, so any sort of chance that, well, maybe he never saw Lazarus. Maybe he never knew he was dying outside of his gate. Oh, he knew, and he knew it well enough to know his name. And he knew well enough to let him starve to death while he kept the dogs alive. It showed who he really was on the inside. He knew. So see what Abraham says. Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. Now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. This is the Luke's theme of the great reversal. Now, what we don't want to say is this is automatic. All the rich people are going to hell and all, all the poor people, are, that's like what we call liberation theology. It's a little nuts. Um, but Jesus is challenging the prevailing view of the day that, it's, that it was automatic. Rich people are blessed by God and that's just sort of how it works. He's saying to the rich guy, you thought you were blessed by God. You thought you were automatically going to end up at Abraham's side because you were loaded. You looked down on Lazarus because he was a beggar. And so now your whole worldview is wrong. This must be shocking to you. But anyway, he continues. Um, Abraham continues. Besides all this, uh, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from, from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So again, the imagery here is clear. This is not a literal description of what the actual uh, landscape looks like in heaven and hell. There's no chasm probably exactly like this. Um, we know, we have a better idea of what heaven looks like as the perfect restored earth from reading a lot of the other parts of scripture. Um, but what does the imagery that Jesus is using convey? Is that there's no crossing over, there's no bridge, there's no path between them. These are eternal states. Uh, we read that in like half of the verses we just read a minute ago. These are eternal states. Verse 27. And he said, so, send him over here to help me. Abraham goes, not going to happen. Right? You had your, you know, this is how it works. And we couldn't come over even if we wanted to. So he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they may also come to this place of torment. He's still ordering Lazarus around. <laughs> Send him to go to my dad's house and warn my brothers. So I think this rich guy, he realizes now my fate is sealed. He's come to grips with that. So he asks for this. Now, was he being showing some sort of a hint of selflessness here? No, he wasn't. This is family clan culture. He's just protecting his own. That's what he's doing. Um, William Hendrickson, who's a commentator, wrote a commentary I really love called the Baker New Testament Commentary. He said this, he's trying to say, if I had been warned, I wouldn't be here today. That's the first thing. If you go warn them, so that's the first thing. This is not really my fault. Nobody warned me. The second thing is he doesn't want his brothers to join him for fear they would blame him for the bad example he gave them. And then the third thing is he points out later on, I don't have it in the quote there, 
He also, don't send them to anybody else's brothers. Just send them to my brothers. So this guy here, in, even in hell, is acting selfishly. But Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let them hear them. So his excuse is, if, I was, if somebody had told me, I wouldn't be here now. Abraham goes, um, God did tell you. Right? You ever seen how big the Old Testament is? It's fat. There's a lot to it. And there's a lot of stuff in there about following the covenant and living a life of upside-down kingdom, right? The justice and taking care of the poor and following God and, you know, the salvation that comes from redemption. There was a lot of that in there, and he ignored all of it, right? It's like um, he was saying, look, this, the Old Testament for you, and we would say the, the whole Bible for us, it's like, a, you know, the treasure map from one of those movies, the treasure, you guys like those movies, those treasure hunting movies, uh, like what's one? Oh, where Indiana Jones is trying to find the, the Holy Grail, is it? And he has the book, the whole movie. He's trying to hold on to the book with all the clues. Or what was that one I just saw with Spider-Man and Mark Wahlberg? Uncharted, is that what it's called? Yeah. They had helicopters flying pirate ships into mountains. It was a whole thing, right? Anyway, but they had like the map, right? You got to have the map. He's saying, dude, you had the map. You didn't follow it. And now you're mad at me. This, that's not how it works. Let them hear them. That's what he says. Right, and the word here, it has kind of a wider meaning in Greek. When you tell somebody, listen up, you don't just mean listen, you mean listen and obey. Right, it's like a, it's a bigger word. It means you got to hear it and then do something about it. So let them listen to Moses and the prophets and do what they say. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He corrects Abraham's theology. This is absolutely nuts, right? What would you expect to hear somebody in hell? How, how, do you, how would you, in our minds, how do you think they would be reacting? This is so awful, I repent, right? But the picture here is this guy has turned even more selfish. Have that poor guy bring me water. Have that poor guy go tell my brothers. Abraham says, that's not how it works. Well, it is how it works. Right? This is what he's doing. This is human nature turned in on itself, right? Which was the first sin. We told God, we don't want you to be the Lord. We want to be the Lord. We want to do whatever we want. And so that, that selfishness grows and grows and grows like one of Melissa's sourdough thingies, right? You know, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, right? Until it fills the whole house. That's what's happening here. One aspect of hell, and C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, uh, where he talks about this. One aspect of hell is that like that sinful, selfish nature gets driven to the max in hell. And that that's one of the worst things that can happen to somebody is for God to say, okay, you want to be the Lord? Great, go all the way. And that's what happens. Um, in another book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis says this, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. <laughs> Right. Meaning, and that's not exactly true, but you get the idea, right? What he's saying is it's not like everybody's really thinking, boy, Jesus is Lord and I should repent of my sin. They're even more selfish and um, sinful than they were before. Um, I'll pretend that says people. Pretend I didn't delete the P there. People in hell. No, people in hell. This is D.A. Carson again. Will still be trying to justify themselves 
still try to justify their arguments. We should not think of hell as a place where men and women who go there spend eternity repenting and wanting to get out, but they just can't. I can't think of a single place in the Bible, not one, where people in hell actually repent. Hell is not a place where people are having second chances because now they're sorry for what happened. They're sorry for what they've done. Hell is filled with people who are still justifying themselves and for all eternity, still justifying themselves, blaming God, blaming the Lazaruses, blaming everybody but themselves without any brokenness, any contrition, just more bitterness, more malice, and no end of it. That's what we see from this guy, exactly what he says. He's still trying to like justify what's going on, justify himself. Now, uh, the, the text finishes. How does Abraham respond to this guy questioning Abraham's theology? He said, well, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced should someone rise from the dead. Basically, the scriptures are enough. Now, he says, basically, I know you were arguing with me, but I was right the first time when I said the scriptures were enough. And it's, I don't know if your parents ever did that. My parents did. There was like definitely a moment where they were like, all right, this conversation's over. I already told you. <laughs> right, we're not going to do this, this loop 50 times where you just keep saying the same thing to me. That's what Abraham does. You know, the scriptures are enough, enough to keep your brothers from hell. And that's how the text ends. Now, let's be real. This is a heavy topic. This is heavy stuff. Nothing here should be taking, taken lightly. Um, uh, Jesus, uh, so anyway, what I want to do to end is give you, just real quick, a couple minutes here, give you three kind of big takeaways from this. Okay, here's the first takeaway. That we should have an urgency because people are really going to hell. Followers of Jesus, we should have this urgency because people really are going to hell. Jesus' teaching about hell should not only be a warning to unbelievers, right, but it should, uh, you know, no pun intended, it should light a fire under his disciples, right? It should, it should make us sad and it should make us, it should give us an urgency. Now, I'm going to read this crazy long passage here from Francis Chan's book. And I thought about, well, let me just summarize this. But then I was like, you know what? It's too good to not just read it. So he says this. And um, Francis told me once that um, this was the hardest book he ever had to write. But he felt like God was calling him to write this book. And he spent a lot of time on it. He went back and forth. And he really struggled with writing this book about hell. He said this, as I write this chapter about hell, I'm sitting in the middle of a busy Starbucks. Every time I look up from my computer screen, I'm surrounded by thirsty customers racing to the counter to fuel up on lattes and iced teas and mochas. Francis is a great guy. We'll forgive him for being in a Starbucks. All right. Anyway, they're happy, they're busy, enjoying life, laughing, chatting, and of course, they're texting. Two moms look as if they've just got done jogging. They sit next to me, digging into each other's lives. Another couple just left. They were all over each other, a typical young couple without a care in the world. The girl last in line, she looks sad, really sad. It makes me wonder what just happened in her life. And what about the employees? Are they happy? Some look that way, but others don't. Joy, laughter, coffee, what Starbucks calls jazz. Texting, talking, flirting, friendship, depression, and the hope to be freed from it one day. This is life. I love it, and so do they. The place buzzes with life. Meanwhile, I sit here reading passage after passage after passage, which say that some of these people are going to hell. It sickens me to say that, and I can't explain how conflicted I feel right now. 
There are at least a dozen people within 10 feet of me right here, right now, that may end up in the agony that I'm studying. What do I do? Do I keep writing? Do I keep studying? Should I bag this whole thing and start building relationships with them? How can I believe these passages yet sit here silently? I know that some of you have faced the same conflict. Even as you're reading this, there's probably people within a few feet of you who may be going to hell. What do you do? It could be the Lord wants you to put the book down. Coming face to face with these passages on hell and asking these tough questions is a heart-wrenching process. It forces me to a sobering reality. This is not about doctrine. This is about destinies. And if you're reading this book and you're wrestling with what the Bible says about hell, you cannot let this be a mere academic exercise. You must let Jesus' very real teaching on hell sober you up. And you must let the words, Jesus' words, reconfigure the way that you live, the way you talk, the way you see the world, and the way you see the people around you. All right, so that's a really long quote to read from that book, but you get the idea. Right? If you're more connected and, and just like obsessed, concerned with theological details and word studies and is hell literal fire or what's the timeline look like or then you are about people. If you care more about that than you do about people, you've completely missed the point. If you love somebody, you don't want bad things to happen to them. Hell is the worst thing that can happen to a person. And that's why part of our motivation, this is part of our motivation for engaging in the Paps Blue Ribbon stuff, right? Our whole outreach pathway. Pray for people, ask them about their lives, bless them in ways nobody else would, share your story with them and talk to them about the gospel. It's not our entire motivation. On the positive side, not only do we want them to avoid the, the agony of hell, we want them to experience the joy of redemption and the, the wonderfulness it is to be united with Christ. Right? We want our baristas and um, our accountants, our kids' teachers, our neighbors, coworkers, family, friends, even the people we don't like. We want them to avoid this fate and to end up with Jesus. Okay, so how? This is our second point. So the first point is this should sober us up. The second point is Scripture is the way out. Abraham was pretty clear in this passage. He said it a couple of times. God has revealed everything we need to know about salvation, and he's done it in, the bo in this book. Now, when we talk about how Scripture is, we'll say things like, um, you know, we talk about how Scripture is complete. What we mean by that is it's not, it doesn't have every bit of knowledge in the entire world, Right? How to install hardwood floors. I don't know how to do that. And if I needed to learn, I wouldn't go to the Bible. It doesn't tell me how to do it. But what scripture does have is everything you need for salvation, right? And all that stuff is clear in the Bible. And so here at the porch, right, we hold this high view of scripture. We're a people who study the book and adore it. We're molded by it. We sit under its authority. But most of all, we try to live its story in our own lives. Now, what story? What is the story? This is the third point. What's the story? It's of somebody who dies and comes back to life. This is where it all gets funny, right? Jesus told the parable to the Pharisees and with a bunch of other folks around his disciples, like this group that's been following him towards Jerusalem. Look at the last verse again. He said to him, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you, do you get the irony there? Your brothers wouldn't even be convinced if somebody came back from the dead and told them that this was how it worked. That's exactly what happens in a few chapters in the book of Luke. Somebody comes back from the dead and all these people still don't really believe. 
right? This is the story of Christ, right? The, the scriptures tell the story of somebody who did exactly what he's talking about, somebody who died and came back from the dead, right? But what's the story? How did he die? Why did he die? Well, he went through hell for us. That's the story. All the punishment that God's people deserved, all the penalty for sin, all of that was poured out on Jesus as he died. And that's the reason, that's one of the reasons that teaching on hell is so important. And there was a guy, a pastor back in the day, I've quoted a bunch. His name was uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. They call him the good doctor because before he was a pastor, he was a doctor. And uh, he has an illustration in one of his sermons where he said, imagine a friend comes over to your house, right? And the friend says, you, you get home, your friend's already at your house. And a friend says, hey, I got here early and I saw on your counter there you had a bill. And so I went online and I paid it for you. Now, how would you respond? You would have no idea until you knew which bill, right? Did you tip the Grubhub guy a few extra bucks? Uh, or did you pay my student loans? <laughs> right, there's two very different, right, you know, 10 years of back taxes was his actual, you know, in the illustration. So then he says this right at the end. He says, look, until I know, this is the exact quote from his illustration. Until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down at the ground and kiss his feet. Those are two very different, you know, depending on the size of the bill. And one of the things that the teaching on hell does, aside from showing us the destiny of people outside of Christ, and giving us the urgency for the people that we love, one of the things it does is this teaching on hell shows us how big the bill was, right? It shows us how massive the debt that we owed to God was, an eternity of torment and suffering and selfishness turned in on itself and the wrath of God being poured out, all of this stuff. And you can't really see how much God loves you until you see what he says about hell. And so it really doesn't make sense then to try to make God more loving by saying there's no such thing as hell, which is what a lot of people will try to do. There's no such thing as hell. I just serve a God who loves. The problem is by doing that, and Keller does, talks about this a lot, what you've done is you've taken away the most loving thing God ever did. You're taking that out of the story. Because the way to avoid hell, to avoid being the rich man from the parable, is to put your faith in the one who went through hell for you. The one who suffered the complete wrath of God in your place, who took the justice that should have been handed out to you. Right? And so the way, the big key takeaway for most of us here is the more that we understand about what the Bible teaches about hell, the more beautiful the work of Christ becomes and the more actually we fall down in worship. Right? What did Lloyd-Jones say? Until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down at the ground and kiss his feet. The doctrine of hell tells us it's the second one. Right? That's what Jesus has done for us. All right, let's pray.